that's why some of the most fascinating uh, stories I read about uh, endurance athletes are not of their great successes. I mean, those are kind of formulaic, if you will, but the great kind of defeats or failures, those, those are what really intrigues me because I think you learn a lot more about yourself when you fail or come close to failing than when you succeed. That's ultramarathoner Dean Karnazes, and this is the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. What's up, everybody? How you guys doing? What's going on? My name is Rich Roll. I am your host. Welcome or welcome back to the show. This is the program where I go long form with some of the most intriguing thought leaders and positive paradigm breaking change makers all across the globe. People who have devoted their lives to making the world a better place on an effort to help you and me unlock and unleash our best, most authentic selves. If you would like to support the show, there are oh so many ways, but perhaps the single most powerful way you can help is just to subscribe. It's totally free. So if you haven't done so already, please make a point of clicking that subscribe button on iTunes or on whatever app you use to consume podcast content. And thank you very much for that. Okay. So today marks the return of my buddy and ultra running legend, Dean Karnazes, to the podcast. Uh, we pick up where we left off almost exactly two years ago, which was episode 115. That posted November 30th of 2014. So it is almost exactly two years ago. Uh, and that is one of my most popular episodes ever. So check it out if you missed it the first time around. Uh, for the few out there who don't know who Dean is, let me uh, briefly break it down for you guys. Hailed by Time Magazine as one of the top 100 most influential people in the world. Dean is a New York Times bestselling author of several books and perhaps the globe's most recognized ultramarathoner. This guy is a true ambassador of running and a guy who has really pushed his body, mind, and spirit to places most people simply cannot fathom. Uh, to give you an idea of what Dean is all about, let me briefly run through just a few of his ridiculous mind-bending running accomplishments. Uh, he ran 350 miles in under 81 hours, foregoing sleep for three days. He ran a marathon in each of the 50 states in 50 consecutive days. He won the Ford Desert Race Series in 2008, which is a super prestigious uh, ultra-marathoning series race. Uh, he won the Badwater 135 in 2004, and he's gone on to run that race 10 times. Uh, he ran 148 miles on a treadmill in 24 hours, and he also ran 3,000 miles across the U.S. from Disneyland to New York City in just 75 days. Uh, amazing, right? I got a bunch more I want to say about Dean and this conversation, but first... We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested, or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, 
and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentus products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentus.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, 
go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. So I first met Dean back in 2011, and we've been fast friends ever since. In fact, in 2013, I even helped crew him to his 10th Badwater finish, which was just an incredible, uh, epic, and amazingly meaningful experience for me. And today, we convene to discuss Dean's latest excursions and adventures and fascinations, as well as his brand new book, which is called the Road to Sparta, Reliving the Ancient Battle and Epic Run that Inspired the World's Greatest Foot Race. Uh, as I say in the podcast, I truly believe that this is the book that Dean was born to write. Uh, it's the personal story of Dean's Greek heritage. Uh, it's also this incredibly well-researched historical account of Greece's defense against the Persians back in 490 BC, and the critical role that was played by this guy called Pheidippides, who, among many other unbelievable feats uh, that we get into in the podcast, is a guy who ran for 36 hours straight from Athens to Sparta, which is 153 miles, to seek help in defending Athens from a Persian invasion in the Battle of Marathon. Uh, that was a run that made Pheidippides perhaps the greatest and most heroic ultramarathoner of all time. And it was also a run that in many ways, I think it can be uh, cogently argued, saved Western civilization as well as democracy as we know it and enjoy it today. Uh, and finally, the book is also this beautiful firsthand account of Dean's attempt to honor his long-lost Greek ancestor by himself retracing the steps of Pheidippides and his ancient and historic 153-mile run, and he did so training only on the foods that Pheidippides would have eaten at the time, which is really uh, cool and fascinating. Uh, it's a really great read. It's a fun book, and we get into some absolutely fascinating and fun stories about the book and about Pheidippides and about Greek history, and this incredibly important role that was played by ultra runners in Greece's military of the time. So you guys are in for a treat. Uh, I consider Dean to be a role model in addition to being one of the great athletes of our time and an inspiration to literally millions of people worldwide. He's somebody that I'm lucky to call friend uh, and mentor as well. And I'm just thrilled to share a little bit more of Dean with you guys today. So beyond the new book, this is a conversation about curiosity, drive, and balance. It's about out-of-body experiences. Dean tells a really amazing story about something that happened to him on the road to Sparta. Uh, and it's also about how Dean's training and nutrition has evolved over the years. It's about common mistakes many runners make. And it's about what motivates him to continue pushing the boundaries of human capabilities well into his 50s. But mostly, it's about what it means to be who you are and the beautiful embrace of discomfort that's required to explore and continually discover what that is and what it really means. Oh, he said he, that was, was, he was reading. He yeah, was reading he, he, he had no idea we were friends. Oh, yeah, that's I didn't cool. say anything. Did you tell him we were going to see each other? No, I didn't. Even, I didn't even mention. He just said, "I'm." I'm like, "Oh, I know Richie's a good guy." I what's his name? What's the, What's the guy's name? Andres. Hey, Andres. Good luck in the Cozumel. <laughs> we're, we're recording. We're on. We're rolling. Dude, you better finish. <laughs> no DNF now. You're never living it down. Well, this will post after the race, unfortunately, but we're still sending out the good vibes to the universe. <laughs> 
So it's good to see you, man. It's good to be back in front of you. Yeah. Thanks for having me back on. I appreciate yeah. you uh, taking the time. Welcome to Los Angeles. <laughs> so you've been, you were- I try to avoid been, this place whenever I can. Oh, come it's on. It's always good seeing you. You're, yeah. Listen, you're a SoCal native. I well, was born here. You're I mean, Greek. Yeah. We're going to get into all that. But yeah, don't, don't disavow your SoCal <laughs> uh, heritage and roots. We get hate mail. <laughs> oh, come on. You, you, you just have to go come out. We're in West Hollywood right now, but you got to come out to my neck of the woods. I think you would dig it. Yeah, no, I like it further north. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even beyond your house, maybe up Ventura County, maybe Santa Barbara County. Yeah, yeah it's nice up there, man. LA gets kind of a bad. Well, I went to yeah, and I went to Cal Poly. I don't know if you know my. I do know that. Flowtown guy. Yeah, I do yeah. know that. Yeah. Um, and you're down here for, of all things, a game show. <laughs> you're doing a game show. What is going on? Let's see. I can probably tell you all about it because I think it'll have aired by the time this the podcast goes live. Uh-huh. But it's uh, it's called To Tell the Truth, and it's a remake of that classic program. So. There's a uh, celebrity panel of four celebrities, and there's myself and two imposters. And we both go on, all three of us go on stage, and we say, hey, I'm Dean Carnassus, the ultra marathon man. I ran 50 marathons in 50 stages in 50 days. Uh-huh. And the next guy says, no, I'm the Dean Carnassus. I'm the ultra marathoner. I, you know, I've run everywhere across the world. And the celebrities ask us questions, and then at the end, they say, well, the real Dean Carnassus stand up. So the contestants have to guess which person is yep. the real person. And they person. can ask all kinds of probing questions. I have the easy part because I don't have to make anything up. They said, just answer as you would. Yeah. yeah. Well, are they going to let you uh, do it in shorts so people can see your calves? Because <laughs> that's going to be a dead giveaway. They have, they've got a wardrobe person. There's, that was exactly what they're saying. They're like, we want everyone to be in athletic gear. But if it's so obvious that like you're so much fitter than these other guys, because right. they're you know they're just uh, celebrities, or I mean they're just uh, paid models they're right. bringing in, right? Um, you know uh, what they call it, special talent or you know talent extra. So uh, if we look too much different, it's going to be in street clothes. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, that'll be fun. That's a little bit <laughs> different. different yeah, you yeah. know, you you're always like doing some offbeat stuff like that. Weren't you going to do like Dancing with the Stars at some point? <laughs> I, I turned it down. Oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah. I talked with some of my sponsors and like, it's kind of off brand. And, yeah. Yeah. In, hind- well, in hindsight, I think I should have done it. But if you whatever. have some kind of crazy crisis and everything goes goes to hell, then that's kind of where you go to resuscitate everything. <laughs> no, if you saw me dance, yeah. you would not say that. <laughs> well, anyway, um, it's really good to see you. I don't think I've seen you since Badwater when I crewed for you, which was... Three years, two and a half years ago, I think. At this point, yeah, I can't remember if those are good memories or bad, bad ones. Yeah. Well, they're good. They're good memories for me. I mean, first of all, I just wanted to publicly thank you for asking me to be part of your crew. That was just a. It was an unbelievable experience for me, and it meant a lot to me. So I really appreciated uh, being able to contribute and and participate in that with you. It was it was quite something. I can't believe you're thanking me for being a crew member because no. crewing out there's nothing but hell. It's, well, yeah. I mean, I learned so much, and it was just, it was a privilege to you know be so proximate to watching you do your thing, and uh, and it was great. And you know, I think in retrospect, looking back on it, I had when you asked me to do it, I was like, yeah, awesome, of course, and that was like the last I thought of it until like the weekend before <laughs> we were doing. So I didn't really, I haven't really, you know, I hadn't been in like kind of quote unquote like training. I wasn't like, you know, working out a ton, but I just thought, oh, you go and you, you crew, like usually at these ultra marathons, you don't really pace until like maybe the last 40 or 50 miles or something like that. And we'll just feed them. We'll stay up all night. It'll be a party. It'll be intense, but it'll be cool. And I remember asking like literally, I think like a couple hours before, or maybe the night before I asked Coop, Jason Coop, your main crew dude, I was like, so how does Dean like to do it? Like, what's the strategy? Like, what are, what are his preferences in terms of pacing? And he's like, well, 
he wants someone running with him the entire time. <laughs> and I went like ashen white. I was like the whole time. I was like, <laughs> oh man, I was, I thought I'm in over my head, you know? I mean, and the first, the first, uh, pacing pull that I took with you was like, I think it was at like two or three in the afternoon, like the hottest part of the day. And I, I almost like couldn't make it. I was like, I don't want to be like in the med tent as like a crew guy. <laughs> the, crew guy goes, the crew guy DNFs. Yeah. Yeah. It was a low moment for me. And I thought I shouldn't have agreed to do this. I don't know if I'm up for it. Uh, but then we ended up running most of the night together. I don't know if you remember, um, which was really great. Like I was, you know, many hours of, you know, just pushing through the darkness. And that's when uh, we talked in depth about this book that now is and now is out in the world, right? You yeah. told me the whole story behind it. We had a lot and, of time uh, out there. To yeah, go. we, we did. Yeah. Time on our I don't know if yeah. you remember, but I remember quite well. And uh, I do. And, you know, I, I mean, just digressing a bit. Uh, the reason I enjoy people running with me is not because I want or need someone running with me the whole time. I like living vicariously through other people's eyes. I mean, I've done it 10 times. It's still magical, but it's to me, it's it's almost like having a kid. You know, you got to see things and experience things for the first time. And it was, you know, it makes mm -hmm. it fresh again for me. So, yeah, yeah, it was it was really fun. It was really fun. And you had, you didn't go back the next year, did you? They're back on the original uh, the original route now, I think. I was going right? to say, I'm lucky that I finished those 10 years that I did. And I'm lucky you joined me that year because now it's, um, the route is still the same, but it has to start at night. So you're not running through the heat oh, of the yeah, desert. Yeah, 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 yeah the yeah, National yeah. Park won't let them do it in the day now. So right. it's changed so it's just, the race dynamic completely. Yeah, I mean, that, that changes it dramatically. Yeah, it's a different experience altogether now. Right. Yeah. It's still, it's still a great experience, but it... Yeah. Right. Cool. So uh, during that nighttime, you started to unpack this whole story about Greece and your fascination uh, with, is it, it's Phidippides. We all say Phidippides, but they say it differently in Greece, don't they? Phidippides. Phidippides. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, almost like you're the, you're this, you know, not to get too soulful, but in certain respects, I think it's fair to say you're you're sort of this modern incarnation of <laughs> of you know not just this man, but this tradition of of ultra running that originated in this ancient time in Greece. You know, for in the four hundreds, four hundred BC. What are they, and they have a term for these people, right? Hemerodromi or hemerodromos. I saw it written, but I yeah. couldn't figure no, out. No, I know how to you pronounce it. it. It the translation means day long runner. I mean. Mm -hmm. uh, Phidippides was a professional runner, and that was his vocation 2,500 years ago. He was essentially the faster internet. Um, the Greeks realized that the quicker they could disseminate information and collect intelligence, uh, the better off they would be as far as defending their territory against invasion. So they trained these guys to run insane distances um, all day and all night. Mm -hmm. uh, they were basically ultra marathoners that were, were you know, professionally trained and paid to do that. And it fascinated me because I had no idea these sort of folks even existed so long ago. Right. So there was this whole culture around celebrating these guys and, and what they could do. But they've almost become, aside from the, the famous story of Phidippides, which, you know, y you then realized as you started to get into the history is, is sort of misunderstood. Um, you know, these guys were like, they, they kind of, this, this culture has been lost in history. And if anything, it's this minor footnote. But when you really look into it, it's quite amazing. It is. And, you know, the translation of his name, Phidippides, literally means spare the horse. And that was because a trained hemerodromo could outrun a horse. <laughs> and we know now, um, you know, with uh, man versus horse that, uh, you know, I've outrun a horse during the Vermont Trail 100. 
So it's possible for a man to outrun a horse. And um, in the in the mountainous hilly terrain of Greece, southern Greece, uh, a man could easily outrun a horse, and they did routinely. And you you know, for for me to kind of see the way I live my life and become more adventurous with my running, you know, not just doing ultra marathons, but doing you know runs like across California, just these kind of self you know mm-hmm. conceived. 50 marathons, 50 states, 50 days, kind of these adventures, I came full circle and realized a lot of that may be inbred in a certain way. Right. I, I, I think that's beyond a shadow of a doubt what's going on. Like when you tell the story in the book about running um, from Sonoma down to San Diego and staying at the missions, uh, I mean, when you did that, was that, so it's basically a coastal run from Northern California to Southern California. Uh, when you did that, were you aware of this Greek tradition or were you sort of just doing it because you were compelled and inspired to do it? Because in many ways you were doing exactly what these people did. And this is hardwired into your DNA and and your history being Greek. Yeah. And that's a really insightful question. I, I didn't know about any of this history when I was doing this. I mean, it's just something I wanted to do. Um, you know, I had always believed the story that uh, Pheidippides ran from the Battle of Marathon to the Acropolis, 26.2 miles, uh, and that was as far as he went. You know, and he proclaimed mm-hmm. Nike, Nike, or Nike, Nike, which means victory, victory. Which you know, is we why were... Nike became Nike shoes, <laughs> yeah. right? Really, Except he died after that. that so they, they, <laughs> <laughs> Nike hasn't really died yet, but uh-huh. um, yeah. Uh, but I didn't know about um, the distances they were really running, you know, or he really ran. I thought it was just a marathon. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get into what the real story is. But I think in in order to kind of provide a proper context for everything that follows, it might make sense to, you know, recap your your journey and and your heritage a little bit. I mean, we did that. We did our first podcast. That was like like a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago at this point. Yeah. Uh, A lot of new listeners who might not have heard that yet. So maybe we can go back a little bit and just hear a little bit about how you got into running the fateful 30th birthday and kind of where you, where you took it from there. Yeah. Um, so I used to love to run when I was a little kid. I remember running home from kindergarten when I was six years old. I mean, that was kind of my fondest childhood memories is, is running and running, um, you know, a mile or so mm-hmm. when my mom couldn't come pick me up because we had, uh, I was the oldest child of three and she was having a hard time getting me home from school with a, a young baby in the house. So I just started running home and loved to run, ran competitively up to uh, freshman in high school. Well, there's one story in the book that I didn't know about, which is that you actually ran your first marathon when you were 14. It was a fundraiser. Yeah, I did. And Because um, I always thought, <laughs> like, the, lore, the sort of lore is that, you know, you yeah, you did a little bit of running in high school, but you didn't really become a runner until that 30-mile run on your 30th birthday. But no, that's not I, I, quite accurate, right? Like, you yeah. showed this amazing facility and capacity and, and, and love for running much earlier. Yeah. I, um, I, you know, I ran 105 laps around the high school track as a fundraiser, uh, to raise money uh, for the library. And that ended up being 26.3 miles. So I literally, and it wasn't a fast marathon. I mean, I, I wish I would have recorded my time in hindsight, but I know is there a couple hours beyond everyone else and mm-hmm. kids were cheering for me and I was out of it when I was, you know, running around this track. And they were high-fiving me and slapping me, and I was just delirious. So it wasn't the, the you know, most spe- spectacular memory, but it, you know, it's, um, it was a marathon at 14, yeah. But I think that, that, in certain respects, was your first connection to your heritage. So maybe talk a little bit about your grandparents 
and, you know, coming into the understanding of, you know, who Pheidippides was. Because that was part of the motivation to run that marathon, was it not? It, yeah, it was. Um, you know, I, my father always insists we're from the same village in the hills of Greece as Pheidippides. And I always tell him, Dad, I grew up in, you know, I was raised in L.A. I mean, what village in the hills of Greece are you talking about? But uh, my grandfather, uh, who has my same, I'm the namesake of him, it's Constantine Nicholas Carnassus. He um, immigrated from uh, this area of the Peloponnese in Greece uh, to Los Angeles. And that's where my family was, you know, born and bred, where I was born and bred. And um, this penchant for running just manifested in me. I'm not sure why. Uh, but I have some really incredible memories of going to like Easter picnic uh, for in you know for Greek for Greeks Easter mm-hmm. is like the most celebrated holiday ever, and watching these old men from from Greece from the old country, and they would just dance they would Greek dance for eight ten hours at a time and they would I just couldn't believe it and they'd take shots of ouzo in between, and they'd get back out on the dance floor and I just thought how do they do this I mean their endurance was just remarkable to me and those things kind of just I'm, I guess they imprinted in a way mm-hmm. upon me, yeah. And and your your father would tell you the story of Pheidippides, sort of you know steeping you in the lore of Greek culture. Well, he you know he told me the story of the marathon and um, Pheidippides dying at the end, and uh-huh. you know I was as a young kid brazen. I just thought that is the coolest thing ever, just you know going out in a, in a blaze of glory, purpose. yeah, and just falling dead. And I I thought I got to do this marathon. I mean it's something. I have to fulfill this. I've got to be one with the ancient Greeks. And that was my way of doing it, is running this marathon. Mm -hmm. And then you had a cross-country coach who was also kind of a mentor and and, and sounds like kind of an amazing guy, an amazing teacher. He he was. Benner Cummings. I'll never forget him. And, you know, rest his soul. He passed away last year. Uh, But I got to to see him again. We reunited before he, uh, he actually died. So he was was more of a, a sage than a coach. I mean, he never... He never really told you what to do. He just kind of instructed, you know, run with your heart and your legs will follow kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Somebody's upstairs. That's all right. We're in a hotel room. This is life. <laughs> life is in session. We're in a sleazy hotel in, in Los <laughs> Angeles. Yeah. So uh, so when he retired, though, so your passion for running I, kind of... Yep, I hung up my shoes. And, yeah. and then I followed kind of the same uh, life trajectory as you did. <laughs> uh-huh. And that, you know, I went to college. I went to graduate school. I went to business school. I partied like crazy more than I should have. Um, maybe not to the same extent that you did, but I was reckless. And on my thirtieth birthday, I was in a nightclub in San Francisco. We mm-hmm. talked about this during the last podcast, right? It was the it was Par- the, the Paragon, Paragon Bar, right? Yeah, yeah, Which was my Marina Local bar when I lived in San Francisco. Yeah, we probably knew yeah. each other then. You well, I think have. I had said in the last podcast, like I was trying to identify when it was. I think I was living in that neighborhood when I had. I very well may have been in the bar that night that that happened. <laughs> I should have taken you with me. <laughs> yeah, I know you're going to save Damn. me ten years. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean that night I just uh, at eleven o'clock at night I walked out of that bar, uh, you know, three sheets to the wind, and decided I was going to run thirty miles. And I knew that if I got to Half Moon Bay, that was thirty miles. So I just left the bar, uh, stripped down to my underwear, and ran all night <laughs> to Half Moon Bay, and forever changed the course of my life that night. Yeah. Right. So, but it wasn't an an overnight thing of like I'm quitting my job and now I'm a full time runner. I mean, the reality of that was that it evolved over many years as you started to explore uh, not just running marathons but ultra marathons, and then distinguishing yourself and slowly moving away from your career path and embracing you know the mystery and the unknown that comes with trying to you know blaze a path 
in this world that's not exactly known for, you know, supporting a professional, right? Like <laughs> you've got kids, you've got, you know, a wife, you got a more, you got all the things that, that, you know, we all have living in modern society, but somehow you, you know, found this marvelous, beautiful, amazing way to be able to do what you love. And I think that's inspiring to everybody, you're, you know, irrespective of whether you're a runner or not to be able to, you know, tap into your passion and create a life around it. I think that, um, my story gives people hope and permission to follow their own passion. I think, you know, as we know, a lot of people live their, you know, their life in a state of quiet desperation. And that's largely because, you know, their vocation is not aligned with their passion. And that's, that's not a new concept. But I think it takes sometimes reading about someone else who's kind of boldly stepped out to um, give you the motivation and the impetus to actually do it yourself. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what I've done. I think a lot of us, I think you're in the same, in that, you know, in that same group um, have, have done that for other people. I think that's a gift we provide. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a blessing to be able to put that message out there. Um, <clears throat> and it's, it's also been, a lot of grunt work, as you yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, it's not, I mean, yeah, it's sort of like, oh, you know, you're now you're living your passion, so everything's easy, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's still You work like, harder than you'll ever, work, you've yeah, ever worked before. I definitely work yeah. hard, you know. It's just different the way you feel about Saturday it. It's Saturday night right now. Yeah. <laughs> Dean, this is work. And we're in a sleazy <laughs> hotel work, room in, you know. in LA. It's not yeah, that sleazy, come on, it's nice. The game show is providing for you well. Um so, so from there, uh, Ultra Marathon Man, your book comes out, which still I would imagine sells like crazy. Like it, that book changed the landscape in terms of how people um, approached running and their understanding of what the human body is capable of. And and since that time, we've seen this this boom in interest in in you know what is what really was a tiny subculture when you wrote the book. Yeah, the you know, and a lot of people. Um, credit that book for contributing to the, the growth of the sport and you know for better or for worse I mean some people say you know you can't get into races now these popular races you know they, they sell out in in hours or the lotteries are so full but I think um, beyond that it's really it's really um, inspired a lot of people to step beyond their comfort zone and to test their limits I mean the first time I heard of someone running a hundred miles and I know a lot of your listeners know about ultra marathoning Others might not, but the first time I heard of someone running 100 miles, I, I couldn't. I just couldn't grasp the concept. I thought, well, where are the hotels along the way? Or, you know, mm-hmm. or how many how many days does it take to do this? And the guy just said, no, the gun goes off, and hopefully with, within 24 hours you reach the finish line. And it was just such an expansive idea to me to that a human could run 100 miles nonstop. I didn't even like driving 100 miles, mm-hmm. and I thought, you know, if I can break this barrier physically, I can you know, extend that same life lesson into every direction. And that's been the case. Right. Yeah. It's, it's been beautiful to watch, uh, to watch that unfold. And, and I think, you know, speaking personally, my, uh, you know, love of, of ultra endurance is really about this template that it provides for self exploration and, and greater self understanding, you know, the training and the racing, it strips you away of, every artifice until you're deeply connected with who you are, what makes you tick, what are your weaknesses, what are your fears, all of that becomes extremely present. Um, and it's allowed me to be able to look at things in my life and, and, and grow past them. And that journey continues, of course. Um, so in certain respects, you can almost call it like, uh, like, a, like a journey home, right? And so I see 
this book, Road to Sparta, we, I just told you this right before we started recording the podcast, but I think this is the book that you are meant to write, you know, because that's what this book is. It's a journey home. It's a, it's a exploration and a journey to expand your sense of self-understanding by going back and connecting with the ancestry that made you who you are today and, and allows you to do what you do. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't have said it better. And you're exactly right. And I hope that, um, you know, I hope it's a fascinating story, first and foremost, of, of seeing this incredible um, lineage that has gone full circle. But I also hope that it inspires other people to kind of learn more about who they are and where they came from. I think the interest in that subject alone is is blossoming. I mean, you know, with Ancestry.com, I know 21 and uh, 23 and me. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, yes. the genetic testing. Mm-hmm. I've done it, and I've, my lineage all comes from Greece, so it I kind of already knew and that. at the very bottom, it says, you are a direct descendant of Fidelis. <laughs> Start running. Yeah. <laughs> Poor you. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So you're aware of, you know, this lore that surrounds, you know, Greek tradition and running on some, you know, kind of general level. But what what happened that made you think, I really need to invest in this? I really need to, you know, get to the bottom of this and explore it and connect with 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 this by going to Greece and and, and really, you know, immersing yourself in the culture? Yeah, it was actually um, an interaction with an old an older Greek man who said, you know, Pheidippides ran more than just a marathon. And I thought, hold it, come on, that's it. We know he ran from the Battle of Marathon to the Acropolis, and that was it. 
And he said, no, no, there's, there's more to the story than that. And so when he said that, I thought, okay, I want to learn the truth. Come on, what really happened here? And so I contacted uh, Professor Paul Cartledge, who's one of the foremost authorities on ancient Greek culture from Cambridge University. Mm-hmm. And he agreed to work with me and kind of piecing together the puzzle. So it just it set in motion this journey for both of us that was really revealing. We and learned a lot. He learned a lot from me as well as I learned, of course, a tremendous amount from him. I mean, how do you piece it together? Like, what is the historic record that you can even point to to get to the bottom of it? Well, I, I approached it through the lens of an ultra-distance runner. So there's uh, one of the ancient sources, Herodotus, who's the father of history. Yeah, he's the, his, the, yeah. the father of the father, the father of history. historian. Yes. Yeah. You know, he had just made mention of Pheidippides being dispatched from Athens to run to Sparta. He was a hemodromo, a day, day long runner, and he ran to Sparta to recruit the Spartans. And Which like, is, for those listening, that's 153 <laughs> miles. He didn't mention right? that. I'm like, hold it. He, he just says just, it very casually. It's one passage in this ancient record that he just dispatched this guy to run there. I'm like, do you understand? I mean, he obviously didn't comprehend what that meant for a human to run that far. I mean, in his day, Hemerodromo, that was their job. I mean, it was just the guy was just doing his job. He was just a day at the office. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing more than that. And I looked at it through, you know, a modern-day ultramarathoner thinking, how was he able to do this? I mean, he ran barefoot. He, you know, subsisted on figs and olives and cured meat, uh, water only, no electrolyte replenishment. And the record says that he arrived in Sparta the day after setting out which can be interpreted as 36 hours. So he left one morning, he ran 153 miles by sunset the next day. Right. I'm like, <laughs> that's insane. Yeah. There's no, you know, GPS watch, no, 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 nothing. no headlamp. Yeah. I mean, and just come on. provide the context as to why he did that. Like what was going on in the world? Because it was, it's rather amazing. Well, it was at a very um, delicate juncture in world history in that um, Greece was this nascent, democracy. This whole idea of rule by the people was foreign. It was brand new. Uh, Persia, who invaded Greece, uh, was a, it was a tyranny. It was a you know, top-down dictatorship. And uh, the Persians, Darius, just thought, we can't let this idea of the people ruling themselves percolate up. I mean, that's, that's going to crush his kingship. So he sent his fleet uh, just to crush the Greeks. And this is like 490 BC. 490 BC, and the Greek, the Athenians were badly outnumbered. Where the you know the Persians landed with upwards of they think 50,000 people, the Greeks at most had 10,000 fighters. Mm-hmm. So and this was in in Marathon, which is sort of on the the west or the east coast of Greece. East coast of Greece, and actually Marathon, the word itself means field of fennel or mm-hmm. fennel, because there's this marathon This is a big plain, an open plain filled with wild fennel. Wild fennel grows, you'd love it. Right. It grows all over naturally in Greece, yeah. So when you say, I'm running a marathon, you're saying, I'm, I'm running a field of fennel. <laughs> we should change all the bumper stickers right. from 26.2 to fennel, yeah. So the Persians, under it was under Cyrus, right? Like they're out for world domination and Greece is standing in their way, but they're kind of you know, they're moving westward and just toppling everything in their wake. Greece was a gnat, basically. I mean, they, the Persian Empire was 70 million people. I mean, Greece was maybe a few hundred thousand. I mean, they just thought, we're just going to roll over Greece, done with this democracy mm-hmm. thing. Um, but if you've seen the movie 300, you know, who is the most badass fighting force in ancient Greeks? It's the Spartans. The Spartans. You know, this is Sparta. Yes. Yeah. 
So um, the Athenians dispatched Pheidippides to run to Leonidas and recruit the Spartans into battle uh, to somehow fight off the Persians. Right, because they, they thought the only way we're going to survive this is if we get the Spartans to come on board and help us out. And yep. But it wasn't like the Spartans and the Athenians were super best friends, right? There was some tension between those, but but sort of Greek nationalism would prevail, right? If if all of Greece was under threat, then Sparta would be compelled to come and help. Yeah, I mean, it's not unlike the U.S. states. I mean, you know, Nevada and California doesn't always see eye to eye. The, the Greek city-states were a little more distinct in that, but you're absolutely right. They, they had a pact where they said, if we were invaded, um, mm-hmm. we put aside our disparages and we all come together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so uh, Pheidippides heads to Sparta, and the mission is you got to get the Spartans on board and get them up here to Marathon as quick as possible because these boats are coming and it's going to be trouble. So he runs 153 miles. <laughs> he gets to Sparta. The Spartans say, we're in. Let's go, let's go fight these guys off as best we can. However, <laughs> our, religion, our religion forbades us from leaving for battle until there's a full moon, and that ain't going to happen for six days. So Pheidippides like, oh, man, the Spartans are coming, but they're not going to leave for six days. How did they know they were coming? How did they know that the, the Persians were coming? Could they see the ships or what was the indication that, they, that this battle was about to happen? Yeah, the Greeks had, they had these, um, uh, basically they were spotters all over. That's one of the things that Hemerodromo would do. They'd run and patrol the coastline. And when they saw the Persians, they'd dispatch a foot messenger back to Athens, say they've invaded and where they've invaded. So that's how that kind of went down. Uh huh. So Sparta says, "Fine, we'll do it, but we gotta wait. We gotta camp out here for six days. Otherwise, we can't leave for battle for we're six gonna days. We're screw ourselves if we violate, you know, the yeah, gods." Then, yeah, exactly. So then Pheidippides has to run back to Athens and deliver this news. He's got to tell like, his people He's the like, next day. The next day. <laughs> so it's you know a three hundred mile round trip. And this is ver- verified in the historical record. It's on the record. Yep. Yeah. That's amazing. It's amazing, but it's just glossed over in the record. Uh-huh. I mean, there's there's a lot of emphasis on the battle. So he ran back, and then he ran this back. happened. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And not only that, he ran back to Athens. <coughs> Sorry. Let me grab some water. Yeah, so he, he, he runs back to Athens. He's got to deliver uh, this news that uh, Spartan's in, but you're going to have to wait a little bit. And so the Athenians do what? I mean, they're faced with this choice, either wait for the Spartans, uh, in which case they're imperiled by the impending... Persian uh, invasion or show up and fight. And that's exactly what happened. So the intelligence that Pheidippides provided really proved crucial to the Battle of Marathon because had he not returned and informed the Athenians that the Spartans are delayed, the the, uh, Spartans probably would have retreated back to Athens and been slaughtered in waiting for the Spartans. Mm -hmm. But he gave them the intelligence saying the Spartans are not coming. Uh, the Athenians made the decision the next morning we need to take on the Persians. It's got to happen now. Every day we wait. They're fortifying their positions. We can't wait six days. And therefore, the Battle of Marathon took place. And it can be, you know, you can make a supposition that had Pheidippides not completed his mission, the Battle of Marathon may never have happened. I mean, we'll never know because it's ancient history, but there is a very, there's a probability that it could never have happened. And no one had ever brought this subject up before because no one had ever looked at what happened through the lens of a, an ultramarathoner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the historical ramifications can't be overstated. I mean, first of all, the Athenian, it's a David and Goliath situation, and the Athenians prevail by sort of resorting to these crazy 
you know, guerrilla tactics to overcome this massive army, right? Where they're doing all kinds of things that you see, you know, sort of in modern warfare happen when people are outnumbered, like they, they encamp, they, they sort of circle around them and they have all these, you know, they, they took off all their armor, right? So they were nimble and could move around more quickly and all these things that sort of violated the principles of traditional warfare at the time. Well, and the Persians had this tremendous um, fleet of archers, and that's how they typically took on a, uh, an enemy, is when the enemy was at a safe distance, these archers would dispatch their arrows into the sky and basically slaughter half the people, and then they'd bring out their cavalry. Mm-hmm. They would just go clean up the mess. Um, the Greeks just thought, we got to rush at them as quickly as we can and not give their archers any any way to shoot at us. Let's get in there quicker. So they basically charged for one mile across this open plain of Marathon, carrying this shield that's estimated to weigh between 35 and 70 pounds in one arm, a thrusting spear in the other arm, and locked shoulder to shoulder with the man next to them. They had to stay in formation because it's called a pharynx, Mm -hmm. and they didn't want to break that. And there was a lot of dishonor in breaking the pharynx because you're, you're not defending the man next to you. So that's how they rushed across the battlefield. And it's been said that when they hit the Persians, when they physically contacted them, the reverberation could be heard for like three to four miles. It was that loud. Wow. That's super crazy. So ultimately, uh, they end up winning this unwinnable battle. Uh, and and in so doing, uh, really just saved democracy, right? So had the Athenians been overrun in this battle, and the Persians continued to move westward, toppling Greece, democratic principles as we know it may have never, that, that little you know sort of pilot light might have gone out at that time. It's speculation, but things could have very well ended up differently. Mm-hmm. And, and not just democracy, but I mean, you know, the arts, drama, uh, architecture, mathematics, you know, there's a lot of things that the Greeks did uh, in that golden era of Greece that changed the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be said that, you know, previous to that golden era of, of, of Greece, you know, we, we really didn't live. We just avoided dying. You know, our whole life was about not dying, not, you know, being attacked, whatever. And it wasn't until the Greeks came along with some wine and some, you know, raucousness that said, okay, let's turn this around. Let's live a little bit. Um, you know, Socrates had said, um, it, you know, it's, it's not life, but good life is to be chiefly valued. So the Greeks really learned, you know, how to live a good life, and we're kind of following that same model right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the book is the book's really three narratives. It's it's your sort of personal heritage. It's this this uh, historical record of this period and Pheidippides and the Persians, et cetera, and then it's your retracing the steps of Pheidippides by 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 yourself running from Athens down to Sparta. Um, but one of the parts of the book that I that I really loved was your description of kind of the culture of Greece at this time <laughs> and talking about uh, this emphasis that they put on developing mind, body, and spirit and, and cultivating, you know, these athletic beings, right, in the gymnasiums and in, you know, the original conception of what academia was, which was basically like working out and then like deep thoughts, <laughs> you know, which yeah. I was like, I want to go to that school. You know, that sounds awesome. You just like get super strong and you talk about, you know, uh, important things. Well, the word gymnasia, where we get our gymnasium, literally means school. So you're right. Um, the ancient schools used to be like 24-hour fitness, but just, you know, staff with Harvard professors, mm-hmm. <laughs> literally. So that's how uh, kids would learn. They'd go and they'd work out. 
Uh, they'd be taught lesson plans. Um, in fact, Aristotle even went beyond the gymnasia, and his, his uh, disciples were called the peripatetics, or the wanderers, because he used to walk around Greece. He used to say, you know, learning takes place outdoors. He would basically give a walking lesson. So mm-hmm. kind of like we have walk, you know, walking meetings right. now. He was doing that 2,500 years ago. Mm-hmm. So what, what else did you learn about uh, you know, Greek philosophy and the great thinkers of this era that, that you know, kind of were presented to you or that you uncovered in doing all the research for this book that have sort of influenced how you, how you live or maybe change your ideas in certain ways? Well, this whole concept of, uh, you touched on it, arete, or, you know, the be- personal bestness, if you will. Um, they, the Greeks thought only you could achieve this if your mind, your body, and your spirit were all aligned. And I think we fail that in so many ways in the West. I mean, a lot of our bodies are not temples anymore, are they? Um, we, we really focus on uh, cerebral development um, to the detriment of our bodies. So the Greeks thought unless you really worked out and really had a fit body, you couldn't have a fit mind and, a, and a, you could never achieve your bestness. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people are realizing that now. Also, the whole idea of spirituality. I think a lot of athletes, um, I know you've gone there, Rich, I've gone there, have realized that interpersonal relationships really matter a lot with performance. And that if you don't have your, your spirituality and your relationships kind of buttoned up, you're never going to be at your best. Mm-hmm. So these are very ancient principles. And during this period of time, like the you know 490 circa this era, what who were the contem- the contemporary leading thinkers of the time? Was that the time of? Because uh, I don't know my timeline, like Socrates, yeah. Aristotle, like they were. It's about, all just a long time ago. But yeah. there could be hundreds of years separating these people. There's um, about 75 years separating them. So some uh-huh. of the some like some of the um, Aeschylus, who fought in the Battle of Marathon, who was a philosopher, and he said, you know, he said really powerful things. He said, um, uh, uh, man searches out God, and searching finds him. And I think that's true. I think that in searching, we find our God, right? However you define that. He also said that um, today is the tomorrow you worried about yesterday. Mm-hmm. So, which speaks to stress, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and living a little free. I mean, the Greeks, that's one thing with even the modern Greek culture that uh, surprises me that, you know, the, the economy's in ruins, things are bad, but they're never beyond just having a shot of ouzo and a little Greek dancing. Mm-hmm. That spirit still lives large, even though uh, it, things are pretty bad over there right now. Right. One of the subjects that comes up quite a bit on the podcast is uh, is Stoicism, but I think that comes, that's like third century, right? It's, it's third, third, yeah. third century BC, you're right. Yeah, have the you, Stoics. Have you studied any of that or looked into that or did that influence how you approach the book? I, it, I'm fascinated with Stoicism and um, <clears throat> that philosophy now, you know, it's kind of, it, it's gone through a rebirth. Yeah, well, it's now it's like a, it's, a, it's like, it's, it's never been cooler to yeah. like be Stoic, <laughs> you know? Well, you know, and before that, it was the Spartans. I mean, living a very Spartan lifestyle, just paring things down and going to more of a simple lifestyle, simple foods. Um, you know, the, the Spartans live very simply. Mm-hmm. And also they thought that, you know, living in a hard land bred hard people that could tolerate things. So they also put themselves against hardship. They didn't live a comfortable life. And that was their recipe for happiness and fulfillment. Um, you know, the, Sto- the Stoics came about, uh, you know, 100, 150 years after the period I write about. So I kind of left that out of the book. Right. So just to kind of perpetuate the timeline here. So the, so 
the Athenians defeat the Persians. Uh, Pheidippides runs back to Athens from Marathon to deliver the news to say, Nike, Nike, victory. And then he collapses and dies as, as the apocryphal story goes, or perhaps it happened. We don't know. I loved your sort of uh, fantasy version of events <laughs> that you spun at the end. It's like, my book, damn it. I'm yeah, telling like, the story where I want to tell This is yeah. the way it happened, my version, uh, which was beautifully written, by the way. I love that. I'll, I'll take your version of, of, of that story any day of the week. Um, but of course, knowing, okay, we defeated the Persians, but like they're going to go home, lick their wounds, and they're going to come back fiercer than ever. Uh, and, and how uh, Greece sort of girded themselves and prepared for that. And that uh, culminated in the battle that we all saw in that movie 300, right? Battle With Leonidas. Thermopylae. Yeah, yeah. Thermopylae. Yeah. Where the 300 Spartans defeat the, defeat the Persians. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, moving that along that timeline, I mean, that allowed Greece to really proliferate and all these ideals that we're speaking about, um, you know, grew to prominence. And then when Alexander the Great came along, um, what he did is he migrated east. So he set out on the ancient Silk Road, if you will, across Asia and really conquered a lot of Asia. And in doing so, you know, when, when they used to travel these armies, it wasn't just the men. They would take women, children and people would stay along the way. So people would say, I like this valley. I'm going to stay here with my family. And Alexander and, you know, and the kids would be born. New people would, you know, new uh, uh, people would, you know, basically army men would come into existence and they'd move along. So um, the thoughts and principles of Greece got spread in that regard, almost mm-hmm. like pollen in the wind. And that's why uh, the whole idea of democracy and all the principles that we kind of believe in now were able to flourish because they spread so widely across Central Asia. Yeah, that's super fascinating. Really interesting. And and also, I learned a lot about, uh, a lot more about Sp- Sparta. You know, Sparta was more dynamic than I think we realized. We just think of them as being a bunch of hard asses. <laughs> but, but they, you know, the way they treated their women and, you know, treating everybody as, they, they really, like, believed in and oozed these democratic principles from every fiber of, of that culture. Yeah, and they were more militaristic, the Spartans. I mean, they, that was their, their emphasis is, you know, building a, a military force. And they became somewhat obsolete, almost, almost like North Korea now, where, you know, they're, culturally they're so lagging so far behind. But for that period, you're right, they were very, very democratic, more so than the Athenians in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the Athenians, it was just the men working out. The women weren't allowed inside. Um, the Spartans, men and women, worked out alongside each other. So the women... Uh, held prominent positions in in politics in the government, as well as you know they're tough. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know their their attitude. I mean, you know, there's the saying of the Spartan mother who sends her son off to war, saying, you know, uh, come back with your shield or on your shield. I mean, they were hard <laughs> ass. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. That's so, a mom. Yeah, yeah she, I know. She sings mom. Yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> All right, so you come into this understanding that that there's a lot more to Pheidippides and this this culture of you know ultra runners as being integral to how society functioned in in Greece. Where does the idea of going to Greece and, and retracing his steps start to come into your awareness? Well, uh, Professor Cartledge put me in touch with uh, Dr. P. J. Shaw, who had written a paper. She'd actually retraced the footsteps of Pheidippides as best she could. And she actually wrote uh, the foremost authoritative research paper on the travels of Pheidippides. So I uh, spoke with her. Um, she sent me all of her materials. She was just incredible. 
uh, all the pictures, all her mapping, and this is well before you know GPS or anything. I mean, this is kind of line of sight and piecing together pieces of uh, historical record. So I went and visited those same regions that she had tracked through back in the early 90s. And how does she, you know, recreate that kind of, you know, understanding of how he would have made his way from, you know, one little area to the next? I mean, there's actual documentation on that? She was a historian, yeah, and she pulled every reference she could to Phidippides in ancient record and looked at these sources, looked at some of the descriptions of, like, the mountain peaks, um, you know, the valleys, Mm -hmm. and through that went to these places, observed them, took pictures, and kind of pieced together what she thought was his actual footsteps, you know, his actual trek. And she's sharing all this information with with you. And so your original thought was, I'm going to go there and I'm going to do it exactly the way that he did it. I thought I was going to be able to create his actual run. And um, when I started to, you know, s- you know really dice into and, and dissect um, what she had done, I realized that uh, as an ultramarathoner, there's just too many variables. I mean, one of the things that she made clear is that um, these uh, hemodromo would use line of sight a lot of times to navigate. And depending on the temperature, um, the amount of food, if they were bonking or if they were feeling energetic, they might you know, choose to go right over the top of a mountain and, and straight down because it's a shorter distance, even though it involves you know, climbing and descending thousands of feet. Or they might decide to circumnavigate, you know, the climb and go a longer distance, but on flat terrain. Mm-hmm. So the number of variables that I saw um, through my eyes as an ultramarathoner were just overwhelming. So I saw a lot of the areas that he ran through, but as far as recreating the actual pathway, it, it just, it's something that can never be done. That brings up an interesting subject matter, which is, you know, this intuition that you have as an ultra runner to be able to kind of uh, tap into your environment, to be able to make those kinds of decisions yourself on these expedition type runs that you've done. There's a, you know, you talk about that when you talk about running from Northern California to Southern California, like, do I take the coastal route or do I go over this mountain that's going to be, you know, steep, but it's shorter, but there are these winds and, and, and really like allowing yourself to feel what's right to make that decision is very much in the tradition of these these guys right yeah so here you are like you you really are tapping into that that dna well it's again it's because i've spent so much time outdoors i'm so fascinated with outdoor sports um i think that you know if you were interviewing a surfer and you asked him you know is the wind onshore or offshore is it side shore you know, um, it, it, is the swell northwest? Is it coming from the south? They're going to know these things intimately, mm-hmm. and they'll be able to get very descriptive about exactly what's going on in the environment, the outdoor environment. And it's the same with um, ultramarathoners that have done, you know, races in places where they're kind of, you know, their, their progress is dependent on the weather. And that's that's a reality that very few people live in these days. I mean, we've got mm-hmm. our, our smartphones. I mean, how, how often do you go outside and kind of look up and say, okay, it's feeling kind of humid today. The wind's blowing from the south. Um, it's going to rain later today. Yeah, like never. <laughs> never. Yeah, it's, yeah. Become, it's become irrelevant, right? Well, we're in c- climate-controlled environments, you know, most of our waking, waking and sleeping hours anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, I ran across the U.S., so I ran from L.A. to New York City, and 75 days of basically running from sunup to sundown. And you really get in touch with, with the environment, much more so when you're outdoors all day. And it's, 
I mean, I will, I would, you know, challenge any of the listeners. When was the last time you spent all day outside? Mm-hmm. You know, you might have gone to a barbecue or to a football game, but very few people um, do. Unless you're an ultra marathoner, you know, just get up in the morning and you're outside all day. You watch the sunset, you watch the moonrise, um, you know, and you do it for a full cycle or two. Very few people do that anymore. And so, so doing that, like having that experience of being outdoors for, you know, extremely extended periods of time, like what has that taught you? If you can like drill down on the meaning of that. Well, I think it's, it's, it's where we came from. It's, it's something that we humans, you know, can identify with and it, that's being lost and it will continue to be lost um, as the world progresses. So maybe that magic, maybe the, the connection with the earth um, will never be the same. Uh, I'm worried about it. I know a lot of the younger generation are worried about it. And, you know, we've, we've just become a, a society that is, um, you know, we're, we're trying to deal with such an incredible earth population. And how do you take care of everyone? A lot of it is to build structures, right, and get inside. So um, the reality of where we came from and how we used to live might be lost for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea of walking or and running the exact path of Pheidippides is out the window, right? So was all hope lost? Well, I got to see a lot of the terrain and I got to experience like a lot of the same kind of foraging for food. Uh, so I got to experience a bit of it. I also um, ran a marathon, the Silicon Valley Marathon, wearing an ancient you mm-hmm. know, hoplite outfit. So I got to run in his outfit. Hoplite is AKA toga. Yeah, right? modified toga, yeah. And I ran barefoot, which <laughs> was the only marathon did I ever ran. Did you run barefoot, barefoot or did you have the little leather, like the sandals? No, I, I actually ran barefoot. Oh, you did? Um, uh-huh. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of debate in kind of historical record whether um, Hemerodroma wore sandals or barefoot. They think they might have done both. But they said the, the ones that went for really long distances probably ran barefoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So were you also thinking that when you were going to retrace his steps, you were going to do a barefoot or were you not going to go that crazy? I was probably not going to go that crazy. Yeah, <laughs> one marathon, twenty-six point uh-huh. two miles, like that was enough. Right. So yeah. you, you run, you run this marathon in the toga, barefoot. You get all chafed up, <laughs> and and realize maybe, uh, maybe those those shorts that I usually wear aren't so bad. Yeah. Bloody nipples or not? <laughs> not uh-huh. so, yeah, but I did, um, I did uh, get to run on a lot of the the same footpaths, the same trails that he probably traversed. Definitely a lot of the same mountaintops, a lot of the same canyons, and what's really remarkable is that so little has changed in 2500 years in Greece. In southern Greece, you get outside of Athens and you get up into the Peloponnesus and some of the hills around Tripoli and Sparta, it's the same way it's been for 2500 years. Mm, that's really cool. So, uh so the 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 kind of runner-up way of approaching this is to run the Spartathlon. Yeah, so That's like the closest approximation to having a an authentic experience. Yes. Yeah, and again, for the, you know, just digressing for the listeners, um, the Spartathlon is an organized 153-mile foot race from Athens to Sparta that happens every year in September. And it was, it was originally uh, created in, in, in honor and in memory of Pheidippides, right? Wasn't it like these historians that kind of figured this out and decided they were going to retrace his steps and that's how the race was that kind of came out of that expedition it wasn't actually historians it was actually um uh, some military guys and one became a marathoner and uh read a bit of herodotus he also liked to read ancient record you know he read um ulysses and um homer 
and uh, saw this reference to this guy running 153 miles, and it just fascinated him. And this is back in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. So he was the first, they were the first group of people that actually did it. But again, um, they did their best in recreating this trek, but most of what they did was on the, on the road. They right. tried to follow a road because they couldn't just, be, you know, they had support vans and such. They couldn't just bushwhack up in the mountains. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, uh, so tell me about this race. Because <laughs> not only did you, did you do it, but you did your best to try to have some fidelity to what Fidipides, you know, might have been experiencing by uh, training and training on and fueling on the foods that he most likely was eating. I I ate your foods, Rich. You've been happy. My foods, (laughs) except for the cured meat. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't eat that part. No, but I ate uh, figs and olives, and uh, they used to eat this concoction called pastelli, which was ground sesame seeds and honey. It's almost like an energy paste. So I ate pastelli as well, um, and that's all. I and water. That's all I had during this entire race. And you were tra- you were experimenting with that when you were training, right? I trained so for about nine months. Yeah, yeah, you acclimated on that. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and As best I could. I mean... You- <laughs> what was that like? Like, during the training, forget about the race, but, like, during the training, did it... Was that hard, or was that... Did you feel the same? Did you feel different? It wasn't ideal, and it was a bit constricting in that, you know, when you run for... 14, 15, 16 hours, you start craving a variety of food sources. I saw that firsthand at Badwater. (laughs) You had some crazy requests. Like, I can't even remember. It was like yogurt with like something weird mashed pickles. into it. Yeah, pickles <laughs> and like, you know, pour monster energy drink into it. And I was like, what is he eating? <laughs> yeah, so you know. I mean, those are the kind of cravings you uh-huh. have. And, uh, you know, it's only relying on figs was fine in these long training runs for basically for energy, figs and pastelli. Mm-hmm. Um, but during the race, uh, it, it didn't end up being that way uh, because I'd never gone like for a full 36 hours only eating figs. And there's ramifications eating so many figs. Well, not only that, like leading up to it, you had all kinds of crazy commitments and, you know, flight delays and all sorts of stuff that kind of culminated in you being, you know, I think it's fair to say like semi-exhausted by the time you arrived on the starting line for this thing. So it wasn't like you were in tip-top shape to begin with. Well, I, I, again, in, in um, describing all of that in the book, I hope to give uh, the readers a glimpse into, into my life and into the life of a lot of athletes that are trying to do what I'm doing, where you, you know, you, you, we're not professional basketball players or baseball players. We don't get these huge salaries. We're, we have commitments. We actually have a day job kind of thing, even though it's a little bit of a different um, day job than most. But I tried to show people that um, you know, I'm, I was exhausted going into this, I wasn't fresh. Like some people might just think all we do is train and race and that's far from the case. So I want to give people a glimpse into kind of my lifestyle uh, as well as, you know, the adventure of running the Spartathlon. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so walk me through like some of the highs and lows of the experience of actually doing the race. Well, to describe the race, um, you need to know that the cutoff times are really aggressive. Uh, For instance, you have to be in Corinth within nine and a half hours of start. And that Corinth is um, 50.22 miles. Hmm. And it's a pretty brutal 50.22 miles. It's it's hot, it's wow, kind of Nine rolling. hours for 50, that's, that is aggressive. And you don't want to get there anywhere close to the cutoff time because these you know aggressive cutoffs keep moving forward mm-hmm. uh, throughout the duration of the race. So you want to get there with some buffer ahead. Uh, and 
all was going well for about the first 75 miles, just over the first half of the race. And then things began, began to unravel. And it was largely related to my GI uh, issues and the, the figs, mm-hmm. I think, mostly. Uh, for the figs la- go right through you. <laughs> That's, that was the problem. So for the last 75 miles, I literally did not have a piece of food. I just only drank water, primarily warm water, and ran 75 miles doing that. Mm-hmm. And you had a couple interesting experiences uh, in the latter phases of the race, right? Like you had, well, two things. There was, you had this crazy out-of-body experience. So tell me about that. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries, all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Out of body, I think, is the best description of it. I've never had anything like this happen, and... I was running, so, you know, it had been over 30 hours of nonstop running. It was, you know, morning the next day after starting out, and I started to see, like, a little stick figure below me, like a little image, almost like a little G.I. Joe that was just kind of moving along. And I thought, maybe, is it a, is it a bug? Is it, you know, what is this thing down there? And I was just, like, meditating on this thing. I don't even know for how long. Trying to piece together, what is that? And... And then all of a sudden it dawned on me, that's me. <laughs> it was as though I was in a hot air balloon or like a helicopter looking down on myself. And I thought that that was kind of freaky. How, how long did that go on for? It happened once. I don't know how long I was actually meditating on. Time was, is pretty elastic, right? It, yeah. yeah. And I don't, I can remember with, with great accuracy almost everything about that race there's there's certain blocks in that time frame where I don't remember anything. I don't remember any of it. I can't recollect, you know, how I got from point A to point B. But that's a very specific memory. That that memory in itself, because I remember this little thing down below that I just kept looking at, uh, and you know, cars were going by me. I kept hearing things, but I just couldn't I couldn't get anything out of my head besides this little figure below me. And you're not a stranger to having, you know, kind of crazy psychedelic, you know, hallucinations during these crazy runs that you've done. Like that's, <laughs> that's happened to you before and you've written about it. And, and I think we talked a little bit about it the last time, but this is kind of qualitatively a different experience. 
I don't think this was a hallucination. You know, I've seen things off in the desert. You know, I've, I've seen hallucinations. And a lot of ultra marathoners, a lot of ultra athletes have seen hallucinations. I've had hallucinations talk to me before, which is, is trippy. But um, this was something altogether different. So what do you make of that? I don't know. I mean, maybe that's just how you feel before you die. I, I really don't know. It, it's, I've, I've never had an out-of-body experience. And I, you know, as you saw in the book, I did a lot of research into others that have and seen, you know, when these sort of things have happened. And it's usually been in uh, traumatic incidents, um, car accidents, things where, you know, people are in a coma mm -hmm. and they all of a sudden have these flashbacks, these recollections. I think it was something along those lines. It's super interesting. <laughs> One of the things I always say is uh, I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. And every time my wife hears me say that, she goes, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a uh, multi-dimensional being having a simultaneous experience. And I, go, <laughs> I guess that's like the graduate degree of what I'm talking about. Like I'm not there yet, but yeah. that sounds like a, uh, that sounds like it falls into that category maybe. Well, you know, I, the closest I can get to it, and um, I, I imagine a lot of uh, mothers can relate to this, is when we had my daughter, Alexandria, and I was with my wife, Julie, the entire time. She didn't have any sort of drugs. Like, she wanted to have a natural childbirth. And she was in labor for almost 10 hours. And, uh, you know, I could see, uh, obviously, it's yeah. in the pain and where her head went. She was somewhere else. I mean, I, 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 I witnessed this all very um, coherently. And she was somewhere else. That's the best I can describe it. Mm -hmm. She can't remember a lot of what happened during those 10 hours. But I witnessed the whole thing. And uh, that's that's very similar to, I think, where my head was at. Yeah, I think, well, I think there's a difference between, I mean, I think when you're under extreme duress, whether it's stress or pain, we have a natural defense mechanism to like disassociate, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe that might be part of what she was experiencing, but the idea that you're observing yourself from a distance, <laughs> that gets into some seriously, you know, yeah. trippy stuff, right? Well, I think that had to do with just sheer exhaustion and sleep. I think there's a multi multitude of um, factors that came together. Exhaustion, sleep deprivation, uh, lack of calories. A lot of things came. You know, my electrolytes, I'm sure, were completely whacked out because mm -hmm. I hadn't had any sort of electrolyte replenishment, no salt tabs, nothing, none of that stuff. Well, much like you like to take some flourishes with how Pheidippides actually died. My my take on that is that ultra endurance, like I said earlier, is a portal to the soul, right? And it strips you down to your very core essence until there's nothing else there except the present moment and <clears throat> you know your higher self. And I choose to see that as almost like a door opening into, you know, the unseen realms that I think surround us but are beyond our natural perception and i think it's a gift and that happens only in certain races to me where i really have that happens during my bad races if you will i have some of my best experiences during my bad races because um during a good race you're kind of coherent and you're kind of racing and you're kind of you know you're you've you've got all those pretensions still wrapped around you you've got all your vanities that hasn't gone like, out the door when everything's going well the ego is 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 happy with what's going on that's exactly but when right. it's not going well then the ego gets checked at the door yeah and that gives you an opportunity to look at yourself i agree and i think that's why some of the most fascinating uh, stories i read about uh endurance athletes are not of their great successes i mean those are kind of form formulaic if you will 
but the great kind of defeats or failures, those, those are what really intrigues me. Because I think you learn a lot more about yourself when you fail or come close to failing than when you succeed. Well, there's no question about that. There's no question about that. Um, I experienced that and I, and, and I, you know, I commend you for always like, you're fearless. You just sign up for all these races. You go for it. You don't worry about like, Oh, people think, you know, I need to win or whatever. Like you just do it, you know? And I think that's really, that's really something cool. Um, but the other experience that I wanted to ask you about was, um, this kind of, you had a term for it. I wrote it down. Oh, USWS, the slow wave sleep. Yeah. Where you're, fa- you're like running, but your half of your brain is asleep. Yeah. So tell me about that. It's, you know, it's basically sleep running. And uh, it, it happened to me a couple times during the Spartathlon where I just literally woke up in the middle of the road running, <laughs> thinking I know not to be out in the middle of the road. What's going on? So I'd meander back over the shoulder. And it happened again. I'd wake up running down the middle of the road, and it occurred to me I was sleep running. Did and you know what that was, or did you find out later? Or No, I kind of had episodes of that during other races that I've, that I've uh, partaken in, uh, but this was more pronounced. But it's actually like a, it's a thing, like it has a name. So It does, and we're not the only species. That, well, you know, man, man does this, humans do this, um, typically when they're under great physical duress um, when they're trying to escape like I write about um, people in the military trying to escape a pursuant uh, that are forced marching for you know three four days at a time and they fall asleep with one eye open mm-hmm. so um, we do that uh, other species I, I studied about the the swallows which to me was fascinating the swallows migrate uh, 6,000 miles without a full night's sleep mm-hmm. <laughs> from South America and what they do is they, um, when they start to get drowsy, they fly to a higher altitude where the air is so thin, it puts them to sleep. And then they just glide. And as they come down and the air becomes thicker, it wakes them up. So they come back into consciousness. And, and that's, that sleep cycle is enough to reboot their whole system. And they keep flying along. And they eat, you know, they swallow bugs as they're flying. That's, they don't stop. They don't sit down for 6,000 miles. That's amazing. That's amazing. And you, you expressed how you felt refreshed, like a little bit refreshed, like when you would come out of these little episodes. <laughs> Listeners are probably like, what the heck are you talking about? You know, think back to college. So imagine when you're cramming, you're doing an all-nighter, and you've got that book in front of you, and you kind of, your eyes are so heavy, and you just kind of nod off. But when you wake back up, you're kind of alert again. You're kind of rebooted. And I think that's kind of what I a went through. A little bit, right. Yeah. All right, so uh, so you're you're having all these struggles with your bowel, and you're falling asleep, and you're still running, and you're out of your body, and all this stuff is happening, right? But you make it to the finish line, and, <laughs> and what's what's really cool about <clears throat> this race is the way that all the athletes finish. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's hard to describe the raw emotion in that finish, but uh, you don't go under a finish line. There's no official finish line. You know, you're running with a timing chip, and there's mats you cross along the way. But to actually finish, when you get to the main square of Sparta, there's this towering bronze statue of King Leonidas, and you just touch his feet. So you reach up, and I mean, he's larger than life. It's a 30-foot bronze statue Mm -hmm. in Um, the sky. Gerard Butler. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you just touch his feet, and and that's when they stop the clock, and you're done. Uh Uh-huh. And... You know, talk to me a little bit about what that experience means to you, you know, as, as a Greek person, as somebody who's carrying on this tradition that goes back, you know, hundreds and thousands of years. 
Oh, it, it's chilling. I mean, there's no way for any athlete to arrive at that place. You know, there was 350, over 350 people that started that race from 46 countries. You know, some of the most elite ultra-endurance athletes from around the world, uh, only about a third of the people ever make it. So if for anyone, not just me and my Greek heritage, anyone who stands below Leonidas and touches his feet, you just cry. I mean, it just sends shivers down your spine. It's such an emotional moment. Um, for me, it was somewhat juxtaposed because the moment only lasted for maybe 10 seconds until someone's grabbing me saying, hey, you got an interview here. <laughs> you got an interview mm-hmm. here. And another guy's grabbing me like, hey, you got to go to the medical tent. It's mandatory. They check you in the medical tent. Um, there's people saying, oh, you, you know, your family, your cousins are here. They want to meet you. They want to meet you. People are handing me books, snapping selfies. It was just such a such a conflicted experience right so, so you were Greek. you were you were kind of yanked out <laughs> from the ability to just be present with the moment of i mean i see it as like this crazy full circle like we like you know i said at the outset like this this process of coming home of really like connecting with you know who you are and where you came from and you know this this tradition that you are the modern incarnation of i mean in a symbolic way like it's it's kind of profound it is. And even if you think it through even further, I mean, I had to be at my best. I mean, I could have been a, just an asshole and said, I'm, I'm going, I'm fried, because I was dead at that point. I'm going to go find a you know, hotel and just crawl in a bed. And, but there was a line of like 100 people there to see me. So I just rose to the occasion. I said, I got to be my best. These people are here for me. I want to be there for them. And, you know, when Pheidippides arrived in Sparta, he couldn't just crash. I mean, he had to present a very compelling argument to the Spartans Mm -hmm. to join the Athenians. So he had to stand proud and not look defeated because that would give an impression to the Spartans that there's just no hope. He had to puff out his chest, stand proud and say, men, you know, we need you. And to really, and this is after 36 hours of nonstop running. So in in a way that the two experiences were kind of parallel in that regard. Mm -hmm. What have you taken away from this experience uh, with respect to, I mean, immersing yourself in the history and in the research of trying to understand this period of time and who these people were, I would imagine gives you a, a profound sense of appreciation for you know what this culture created, right? And this is where you come from. But then to travel back to Greece and kind of experience firsthand what's happening there now i mean you talk about this in the book like the juxtaposition of kind of what greece stands for and the current state of affairs with what's going on over there right now yeah i mean you know the the golden days of greece are definitely um you know millennia ago but i think that the greek spirit still looms large and i think that um one thing that we know as athletes is uh, shared suffering brings people together like nothing else and every year I go back to Greece, you know, which has been, you know, half a dozen years now, uh, I see the bonds are growing stronger between people. More people are running in Greece now than ever before. And we saw that with the economic downturn in the U.S. I mean, when you have nothing, you kind of revert to the simple things that you have. And so more people have turned to running in Greece, mm-hmm. which Greeks, you know, were largely it was, running was not the most uh, popular pastime. We'll just leave it at that. But every year I go back, I see more and more uh, runners, just recreational runners, not necessarily not racers, not elite runners, mm-hmm. but people just running around the neighborhoods. So it's it's kind of uh, I think it's it's had positive um, 
positive implications as well as negative implications. Right. So you've gone back there every year. That's yeah, cool. every year. Yeah. A couple times a year sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you, you know, what do you want people to, to get out of this book? Like what is, you know, what is the, you know, the core kind of um, idea behind it that you're trying to convey? Well, you know, f I think first and foremost, I want it to be entertaining. I mean, it's, I want um, someone to enjoy reading it. I've had a couple, you know, really nice messages from people that have said, you know, I started this uh, when the flight took off. I didn't put it down. Mm -hmm. I read it on the, on the cab on the way to the hotel. I read it in my hotel room. It was fascinating. It was, thank you for that. Um, you know, when you engage in something that um, captivates you, it's, it takes your, your head somewhere else, right? You forget about your troubles. You forget about life for a while and just really get into this story. So I hope first and foremost it does that. Uh, secondly, I hope it gives an appreciation for um, the contribution of ancient Greece to, you know, to our modern living. And also, I hope it inspires people, like I said before, to, to find themselves, to really search for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all that comes, comes across. I mean, it goes without saying that I enjoyed it tremendously. And, and like I said, I, I truly believe it is the book that you were meant to write, <laughs> like all the other books that lead up to this book, because it brings everything into like this laser focus of, of who you are. And I think it gives purpose to the work that you do and context, you know, to understand that this is what you, where you come from and to understand that rich history, I think really helps me understand you better. And it also helps me understand the historical context of, of running like throughout culture building over the millennia. Yeah. I, I think anyone who's run a marathon uh, or aspires to run a marathon will really appreciate this book because it explains exactly how the marathon became the marathon and why it, I think it, it looks also inside our heads and like, why are we doing this? <laughs> Running sucks, right? This hurts. Uh, uh, it's painful, but we're, we're still, we're going to do it. We're going to persist and persevere. It's just funny that the, the story of Pheidippides for most people and myself until, you know, I read your book boils down to him running from Marathon to Athens. And that's all we know. And we, th we thought of that as the most, you know, her I'm saying Herculean herculean thing you know <laughs> jesting with that word but yeah that that a human being could could possibly do and yet that was just the, i guess it's because he died right that that makes that story stand the test of time but what if the story had been put out earlier about the 153 maybe like we would have skipped the marathon <laughs> and it would just everybody would be running spartathlons everywhere well and i i explained that in the book i think that uh, the reason that the final marathon was emphasized in the historical record, I mean, the historical record just glosses over this guy running round trip from Athens to Sparta is because he was just doing his job. I mean, it was just, mm -hmm. that's what this guy's job is. He did his job. No big deal. He might have done a good job that day. You know, you get a pat on the back. But that final 26.2, um, the, the messenger died. And in ancient Greece, there was nothing more heroic than dying and serving right. your fellow man. So that is the legend that percolated up through the ages. Right. So let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk to you about Haiti because I know you just uh, ran, ran. When did you, that was a while, was that like a year ago? When did you run across Haiti? In uh, this, earlier this year. Earlier yeah, this right. year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, so I want to hear a little bit about what that was like. Well, I um, got invited by the North Face to go on an expedition to run across Haiti. And I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. There wasn't a lot of research on it. And um, I, I'm very bad at saying no. 
It was a 230-day. Uh, you definitely are overcommitted. <laughs> it was a 230-mile run across Haiti. There's basically one road, as I learned, that goes across Haiti, and we ran on this one road. And it was, Rich, it's hard to describe um, how that impacted me. You, you cannot go there without being impacted. It is the most shocking, uh, disturbing um, situation I've ever been in. I've seen a lot of poverty. I've seen a lot of hardship. I've never seen anything close to Haiti. Uh, it was, uh, we were very juxtaposed there as runners. Um, a lot of the areas, you know, these are villages where they'd never seen an American before. They'd never seen a white person. And here we are running down their street, you know, in, in athletic gear, we're fit, we're, we're you know, we're, we're uh, in good shape, we've got muscle, and these people are, you know, they're, they're uh, you know, they're, they're just trying to make it through the day, literally. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're living day to day in incredible poverty, and we, it was just, it was really bizarre to see this. Well, yeah. this is a situation where, you know, the world's spotlight has sort of moved on right like but the reality is that you know that that's still a story right it's just the news cycle is so fast these days that our attention shifts away and focuses on other things yeah and i mean it, it wasn't even I, I i'm not sure even the the earthquake before that it was that much better because some of the infrastructure there is non-existent mm. and even where money has come in to build infrastructure after the uh, the earthquake uh, a lot of it was in rubble. I mean, it was built. There was no way to sustain it. I'm, there, I don't see a solution to Haiti. You know, I'm a can-do g- kind of guy, like you are, like most Americans. Like, we can fix this. Okay, let's come in. You know, we're, we're the Americans. We'll, we'll get this one righted. Uh, it's going to take a long time. I mean, the deforestation is incredible. I mean, they've largely cut down a lot of the trees on their, on their island and used those to build or for fuel. Um, once they had no f- uh, trees left, they burn plastic for heat to try to heat the food. Uh, they live on you know, subsidies from the UN. There's really no sustainable industry. Um, the oceans are fished out, so they have no you know, source of uh, food from the ocean. It's really a desperate situation down there. It's heartbreaking. And that must have felt weird to like run through that, like, hey, we're here to, you know, was it, I mean, I imagine it was to raise awareness around these issues, or what was that? Was it a fundraiser, or it was a fundraiser? And I mean, we succeeded in that regard because most of the funds came from the U.S. I think all of the funds came from the U.S. Um, but you're right. Could we have done it another way? Maybe. I, I don't. I. I mean, I think we provided entertainment, especially for the kids, because they'd never seen an American before, and here we are, you know, kind of high-fiving kids running down the street, and they could run with us for a while. Uh, for a lot of the villagers, I think, again, it was something they'll never forget. I mean, they've never seen a white person, and here's, you know, all of a sudden, you know, half dozen of us yeah. in clad in running gear running down the street. We're waving to them, and they're kind of looking at us like, you know, are you Martians? Where'd you come from? Uh, but that was it. I mean, other than that one impression, I don't think we left anything of value. And when you come home from something like that, like, do you feel... Like, are, is there an avenue to, you know, be able to contribute in a productive way? Like, is there what can be done? Yeah, I mean, I think I did all that I could do. I, I personally also, I mean, I, I wrote a check for $10,000 just because, you know, I don't have I don't have that much money to donate to charity. But I just said, I, got, I just cannot at least, uh, you, even though, you know, the Haitians are so different than, than I was. I mean, here I am, an athlete 
you know, uh, um, educated. These are villagers that, um, you know, are physical fitness is the last thing on their mind. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they're impoverished. They're, they're worried about getting through the day, feeding their family survival. Even though we're so different, you, you can't see another human like that and not feel an attachment. Uh, At least I can't. So, you know, I, I feel like I did all that I did contributing this money. I just, I don't think you can throw money at this problem and make it go away. I think it's going to take a lot more than that. Yeah. And I don't have the answer. I mean, I really don't know what a solution is. And you're, you're like a global citizen. I mean, you're no stranger to third world countries. Like you've traveled, I, I don't know how many countries you've been to, but you've been to a lot, right? So I've been in all seven yeah. continents twice. So, yeah. Well, you know, I don't know if I told you this, but um, this in the summer, I got invited by the uh, U.S. Department of State to be an athlete ambassador. So I was sent as a sports envoy to run uh, 525 kilometers across the ancient Silk Road um, between three countries to celebrate uh, 25 years of diplomatic relations with the U.S. So I ran across Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah. I, I think I saw it. you posted some photos from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I didn't. I, I guess I didn't really fully process that was yeah. what so, was I mean, going I was a, on. I was oh a U.S. God. ambassador. I'm like, wow, that's incredible. Yeah, that's a cool experience. I could that do a was... whole podcast with you on that. <laughs> we could, we could, because that was. Uh, were you yeah. doing that with a group? But were you the only person running? Like I was a, the only person running. Were, I, wow. Local people came out and ran with me. Uh -huh. um, you know, some places. It was just villagers. Other places, you know, there were high schools with track teams that would run with me. Mm -hmm. um, some nights I stayed in hotels. Uh, a lot of other nights I homesteaded in yurts. So it was a really great experience. Wow. Yeah, I was out there for 12 days running across the uh, Silk Road. What was the most kind of surprising thing that you discovered or saw along the way? I think the most surprising is how unwesternized that area of the world is. Um, you know, I didn't see one Starbucks. I didn't see one McDonald's the entire time. So, uh, you know, I was 12 time zones away from San Francisco from my home city, mm -hmm. from the West Coast. So it's basically, that's as far as you can get away from where you live. Before it's, you start coming back. Yeah, if you bore a hole straight down, that's where I was. And I felt that removed. Um, the cities were remarkable. The infrastructure there was very progressive. Um, some of the, the country I ran through, unspoiled, uh, very natural in the same state it's been for, you know, forever, if you will. Um, the people were very warm, very, you know, it's nomadic. So every town I'd come running into, literally the entire town would come out to greet me. Right. They'd have dancing, you know, they, they'd want to have a celebration. You know, I'd have to run 40 to 50 miles a day and five towns along the way would want to have me there all day. Wow. Did you have a documentary crew with you for that? Yeah, I had a film crew that documented uh -huh. it. So yeah. is there going to be a film coming out about they, that? They, it's on the State Department um, website. So they basically did a, a daily wrap of every single day and then one final video. So oh, it's, it's wow. a short video. It's like uh -huh. a 15-minute, the final one. That's cool. Yeah. So in terms of you know shifting gears, and I want to shift gears a little bit and kind of dissect some of your some of your secrets and your practices. <laughs> I'm interested in, you know, I, I, as I told you earlier, I just turned 50. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I'm trying to under, I'm trying to really reconnect with my body. I've kind of formally started training again um, and, and learning kind of, you know, how it's a little bit different now than it was a couple of years ago and how to approach that. So, you know, how has your training regimen or protocol uh, evolved as you, you know, as you get a little bit older, um, what does that look like? Or has it, or do you just still do the same thing? 
No, I think it's evolved a lot. Um, one is that I've shifted my paradigm, so my whole life now is about training. I just view my life through the lens of an athlete. So there's never a moment when I'm not training. I don't just look at a training block, like, okay, I've got to you know, go out for an hour and click off nine miles at eight-minute pace. Um, I, I literally think, okay, if you have five minutes, you can do 100 burpees. <laughs> right. You can do a set of push-ups. You can do pull-ups. I'm forcing you to sit down right now, by the <laughs> way. Know, Dean more... wanted to stand for the podcast, but the mic stand won't go high enough, so you're getting an- you're gonna get antsy, like, right? Yeah, if you want to stop and take a burpee break, we could do that. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I'm constantly working out. Um, I'm also working out uh, much harder. So HIIT training, you know, high-intensity interval training, mm-hmm. um, really pushing uh, body weight to exhaustion. So really, really pushing uh, as much as I can to try to keep my testosterone levels up because we're getting older, right? Right. So I, I'm doing that. Um, I'm also uh, training smarter, I think. I'm training my legs a lot more for um, you know muscle development versus just running. And what does that look like specifically? Um, I ride this thing called the elliptigo. I think we've talked about that mm-hmm. before. So elliptigo, sometimes a stationary bike in the gym, and then also you know squats, squats with weights. Right. So beyond squats, what uh, what other exercises in the weight room do you do? Um, you know, I, I do primarily body resistance weight uh, exercises. So I'll do sets of um, pull ups, like twenty pull ups, mm-hmm. um, military, and then behind the neck. Wait, and twenty pull ups is you know twenty legit, not those little half jerks. Mm-hmm. Is and I'll do 20 like twenty pull ups is hard. That's a lot. Yeah, I'll do like five or six sets of those a day. I do ledge pull ups too, with just my fingers. So, um, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm a little more bulky than most runners, but I think that's helped me sustain a career, you know, for two decades without an injury. Right. Like you don't ever get injured. I've never, yeah, knock on wood. I mean, I've never, <laughs> but my, you, you know, you must what else? get like little niggles and things like that though. Right. Do you do like massage and, or acupuncture or any of that kind of stuff? I don't do shit. <laughs> I know. I shouldn't say that. Yeah. yeah. No, it's all right. I don't man. use Just a foam t- roller. Tell me your I don't use a foam. I don't use anything. I don't take any any drugs. No drugs at all. Well, you're a true uh, hemero hemero dry. Is that how you say it? Hemerodromy. Yeah. Hemerodromy. Hemerodromy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So wow, none of that stuff. No. You never get like a little. Oh, my knees feeling a little wonky. Not really. I mean, nothing I can't run through, like, within, you know, sometimes during a run, I'm like, oh, you know, that there's a little niggle there. But right. I mean, it usually works itself out within three strides, if not, you know, a couple hundred meters kind of thing. Uh-huh. And do you still get up at, like, four o'clock in the morning? I sometimes do, but I also sometimes sleep until 10 in the morning. Mm-hmm. So I really mix it up. Like, some days, I try to wake naturally when I can. Uh, and if I get up at four in the morning, it's usually because I woke up. I won't set an alarm to get up at four in the morning. And mm-hmm. if I wake up at four in the morning, I'll go with it. So I try to really follow my body circadian rhythm naturally versus forcing it to wake up at certain times. I think that's helped a lot um, as well as just quality of energy throughout the day. And in terms of your run volume, has that changed at all? Do you feel like you don't need to do as much volume because you've been doing it so long? Or do you still run a marathon before breakfast most days of the week? Or what does that look like? I feel like I can get away with a lot without a lot of volume. So I can, like, I just ran the New York City Marathon. Uh, was it wasn't last, it was the weekend before last, mm-hmm. and on very low base. And I think I ran like a three sub three twenty, like three eighteen, maybe three fifteen, mm-hmm. um, and with almost no training. So I can do that kind of stuff, no problem. Now, if I wanted to go sub three hours, 
I'd have to put some effort into it. Mm -hmm. So my speed has definitely decreased as I've gotten older, but I still think my, you know, my endurance is increasing still as far as, you know, just duration and pain tolerance. Right. Well, the, 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 yeah, the endurance can continue to expand. It's the strength that starts to become more difficult as we get older. I'm not having the problem with strength as much as speed. Mm. Yeah. It's, uh, but you know, the other thing is I've shifted my diet a lot. I mean, we've talked about this briefly and, uh, you'd be amazed at my diet in that, uh, I'm pretty much raw these days. Oh yeah. Pretty much raw, but not, uh, I eat protein. I eat primarily fish, so uh, oily fish, salmon, mackerel, sardines. I eat salmon, mackerel, or sardines six nights a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and nothing then, processed, and then nothing refined. A lot of a lot of raw vegetables and fruit. A lot of raw vegetables. I don't cook anything. I don't process anything. Yeah. No grains. No grains. None. Yeah. So when we've you talked go out, about, I mean, we've talked about yeah, this we before, talked about yeah. this before. Yeah, but so all right. So when you go out on a on a, a longer training run and you have to bring some stuff with you, what you know, what do you pack with you? Uh, I go to nut butters a lot, uh, pastilli. So I use mm-hmm. you know that that sesame, it's ground sesame and honey. Um, which do you is, make that yourself? Um, actually, you can buy it. I buy it in bars. Um, you've probably seen the sesame sesame bars kind yeah. of thing. Uh, the ones that are solid, like a hard that you can crack. Those are made with sugar, so don't eat those. The ones that are soft and kind of pliable, uh, those are made with honey. And I, I get them from Greece. So I, I've got a supplier from Greece. Oh, you yeah. do? Uh-huh. Yeah. You can share that supplier? <laughs> that your secret That's stash? <laughs> I have to yeah, kill you it. talked in the book it. about about eating like real Greek olives. The food, like Kalamata is actually a place. And, you know, the people have probably heard of Kalamata olives. They grow olives there in these ancient olive trees that... Uh, produce the best olives in the world and you know the the chinese love kalamata olives so these chinese these you know these very enterprising chinese businessmen said let's just buy instead of playing the import fees let's just buy the trees plant them in china they could never produce an olive that tastes the same you know it's it's the soil it's like this the salinity of the soil Mm -hmm. the you know the hours of sunlight the humidity there's a lot of things that come into making a Kalamata of olive. Well, and the trees are original, right? So they've been there for a very long time, and they're not thousands like of years old. Rebreeding them, and they, to explain these olives, though, they they sounded like they're like the size of like a peach. Yeah, no, they're the size of plums. I mean, they're massive, and you eat them. You can eat them raw. They're mat, and they t- they're uh, fruity. Well, I think yeah. an olive is is a fruit. I think, and they taste, yeah, they taste like almost like a, a hybrid between a, an avocado and a plum. Wow. Yeah. Who would have known, man? Yeah, so you got, you and the foraging, so, the foraging in Greece is unbelievable. I mean, the the the, the yayas, yaya is a grandmother. They walk around and they they pick collards, basically greens. They call it uh, horta, mm-hmm. and they make this collard green where they just steam these collards, and you put a little lemon juice and some uh, olive oil on top. It's amazing that a weed <laughs> can taste so good. Right, that's yeah. cool. All right, so the nut butters, the sesame bars. And what about what about uh, liquids? You know, my go-to is coconut water. I mm-hmm. really believe in coconut water and just unsweetened, plain coconut water. And you know, if I was to have a gl- glass of coconut water now, I really don't like it. Like it doesn't taste very good. But if you're sweating, it tastes terrific. Right. Yeah. Well, and it has it has those electrolytes it's that you're looking lights. for, right? Yeah. So keeping it simple, whole foods. I like yeah. it, man. I'm, yeah. I'm down with that program. <laughs> I've read your books. <laughs> um, I've read your books. What do you think are the common mistakes that most 
athletes or, or runners make? Because you're, you're around thousands of runners. You're at all these races. You have the ability to observe all these people around you all the time and watch people running alongside you. What do you observe where you're like, if they just, don't they understand if they just did this, like it would be so much better? I think it depends on, um, you know, the, 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 both the physical condition and kind of the stage of development, like, you know, newbie runners or new marathoners. Um, one thing I see uh, is they tend to overdress and not necessarily with the right moisture wicking clothes, but they start out when it's cold, they might have a layer, you know, on and, and maybe a, uh, a shell and they just start sweating so quickly. And you're so much more comfortable if you don't generate so much heat. So that's one thing I've seen. Um, I've also seen socks that are too thick. So going to a thinner sock. Um, I've seen a lot of people running in shoes that are overbuilt. I think they're overbuilt, that are forcing them to run in a non-natural gait. Uh, I also think that people um, overhydrate and, and they eat too much. I think like during the New York City Marathon, I had uh, half a glass of water at the halfway mark. Mm-hmm. That's all I had. And I barely ate anything. I had like a little bit of yogurt, like plain full fat Greek yogurt, um, some cashews and a banana for breakfast. Half a glass of water is fine. I think people put too many calories in their mouth. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, you're so adapted to this that you don't really need anything. It's not that taxing for you to go out and run a four-hour marathon or whatever, (laughs) you know? It's not a big deal where it is much more of a big deal for the average person, but I do see... But why? That's what I I question that. Why? You know, I mean, it's not like I've got a lot more... Right now, like, I didn't train a lot more than anyone else running a... a, Yeah, but you've been running, you know, 100, 200-mile weeks for the last 20 years. So, you know, you can't discount that aspect of it but i will i i agree with you like you'll see just out running casually when you go out for a run like people are loaded down like it used to just be a little fuel belt now it's full backpacks yeah. and all kinds of stuff and it's like dude you're only going out for an hour <laughs> you know, it's like, I know. <laughs> and people put so much emphasis on like you know how many gels do i have right now and every you know 15 minutes i gotta have two packs and right i i think that uh we're overdoing it yeah right and so where where do you fall on on the whole shoe thing you know i'm sure people ask you every day what kind of shoe they always everybody wants to know about the shoes what kind of shoe? But I mean, I should preface by saying I can run in wooden clogs. I mean, I, I have a very um, natural uh, uh, gait, if mm-hmm. you will, and natural stride. So I've never needed any sort of support or cushion. And I've always been, I've always trended toward the minimalist. Um, that said, I love running in hokas. I mean, mm-hmm. I think hokas, there's a lot to be said about hokas. So I can run in anything. I think yeah. the, the right shoe for someone is the shoe that fits them best. And I think that it takes a lot of experimentation unfortunately and probably a lot of money <laughs> to find a brand and an actual model that fits you well so i would say go into a specialty retailer you know a shoe store and work with someone who's knowledgeable uh, to get you fitted for the right shoe and they'll let you wear test it like running up and down the block but um you know the, based on the last of the shoe i mean i have a really wide forefoot so there's certain models of shoes like the ultra i love the ultra and the, it's it's not a it's not a, a triple or double e it's it's just a regular shoe because the way their forefoot is so roomy uh, but other people just say there's it's too much like I, I my foot doesn't fill up that space so you really need to find the shoe that works best for you yeah i, I like that advice i mean it's interesting to just watch these trends you know this pendulum swing yeah. you know it was like 
it's Vibrams and it's the New Balance Minimus, and then it all, and then suddenly overnight, it's all about Hoka's, and yeah. you know, and then you know, my introduction to Hoka's was showing up at Badwater and noticing everybody was wearing them. Yeah, what are these shoes? Uh, the pendulum swinging in that direction, and then coming, and then and then really this whole like zero drop, you know, movement with the yeah. ultras and all of that. It's just interesting to watch, but I've never found like the ultimate ultimate. I'm always like I just buying all different kinds of pairs and trying them to see what works. Yeah. <clears throat> I've been running in the ons lately and I really like those. I've never tried those. I've heard great things. Yeah. yeah. They, they really fit me really well. I've been enjoying those. Well, I learn a lot from talking to other runners and uh, I probably, myself and Bart Yasso, probably talk to more runners than anyone else in the world because I'm at literally at a race expo mm -hmm. every single weekend talking to runners at uh, you know, marathon expos or at um, short, even shorter races than that, half marathons. I go to 5Ks because of my sponsors, and I talk to a lot of runners. And I always query them. I'm like, what are you running in? You know, what do you like? And I've heard a lot of good things about the ons. Uh, I've heard a lot of people, like the Hoka's changed their life. Like I used to have all these yeah, shin yeah, yeah. splints and everything. Now they, they went away. So when you hear that, you know, from a lot of different people, uh, of all ages and abilities, you start to believe that's a good shoe for a lot of people. Right. So I got a funny story about the Ons. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I was wearing a pair of Ons, and I, I, uh, in an Instagram photo that I put up a couple weeks ago, and uh, and this dude from On like gets in touch with me. His name is Lottie Demko, and he he writes me this email, and he's like, "Listen, first thing I got to tell you is, I'm vegan. I'm a former pro triathlete." Uh, I work for On Running. I saw your Instagram, but mainly why I'm writing you is because almost every single day, at least 200 times at this point, people come up to me and think that I'm you. And this guy, <laughs> like, you know, and he sent me a photo and he actually looks a lot like me. And, he, and, and so I talked to him on the phone the other day and he's like, yeah, I was in, the, I was in New York City and uh, I'm going out for a run. And he was there for the New York City Marathon. He was going out like the day before for a jog or whatever. And he hears, hey, Rich. And he turns around and it's you. I'm Do you remember so, that? I'm so glad you said that because you're <laughs> telling me that story. I'm like, oh, I, I can tell Rich. Yeah, I, I, know, I met yeah. this other guy who looks just like him in New York. <laughs> That's the guy. It's uncanny. No, I came up. I was ready to start hugging the guy. I mean, he uh -huh. looks exactly like you. Yeah. It's crazy, right? Yeah. He's told me that he started just telling people that he just saying, yeah, like if they think it's me, that he just goes along with it. <laughs> and then somebody tweeted the other day, like, oh, it was great to meet you or whatever. And it's a picture of this person who tweeted it yeah. with Lottie. Yeah. And I was like, Lottie, man, you can't like... <laughs> Pass yourself off as me, but I thought it was funny. And usually people say, oh, I look, you know, you look like this person or that person. But I saw this photo and I was like, oh, my God, he really does look a lot like it's, me. It's I can see why people are. But what nationality, he, what nationality is he? Well, he's, he he's kind accent. of a global citizen. I think he, he's lived all over the world. He lived in, but he's, he's predominantly, he lives in Barcelona now. But I think okay. he's, I think he's Danish. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was pretty, yeah, I thought yeah, yeah. I thought you were anyway. gonna say if this person mom was watching me like you know running down the road and he was gonna say, God, your form really sucks. You know, you need to, <laughs> <laughs> you really supinate, Rich. Uh -huh. You got to work on that. <clears throat> but I just thought it was funny that you were the one you mistook him as me the other week. So yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. Well, we got to wrap this up. Um, but uh, any any parting words of inspiration? I think one thing that I'd like to maybe just you know go out on is. Uh, you know, is how you how you wrap your head around being this 
you know, for lack of a better word, like you're an inspira- inspirational figure. You know, you go to Spartathlon, you finish the race, like you just want to chill and people want a piece of you. They want you to take a selfie or sign a book. You go to everything from the New York City Marathon to like local 5Ks. Somebody's oh, calling you in this room. That's all right. Is that my phone? Oh, it's, that's Is it like the, how, the room phone here? No, it's the... Oh, uh, it's your phone. Yeah, it's... Your cell phone. You have to it's get that. You can't, oh, it's, it's the, the show, show trying to get in touch yeah, with you. I think I got to go do like an audition tonight. Oh, okay, or something. cool. Um, you know, how do you? We talked about this a little bit last time, but I'm interested in whether it's evolved or or not. Um, like, how do you navigate all of that or kind of shoulder that responsibility with grace? Because you know, in the in the in the course of of you know crewing for you at Badwater, I, I got a glimpse of of what it's like. Um, and I'll say two things. The first thing is, no matter how difficult that race became for you, because it wasn't your best race, I know you were struggling and having a hard time, you were always like super gracious with everybody who was helping you. Like you never lost your composure. Like you're very aware of kind of where you stand and, and how people view you. And then after the race, like at the thing at the gym where everybody's there and everybody's kind of like pulling at you, um, you know, to be able to just be composed and not overwhelmed and, and be present, you know, it takes a lot of energy. Like I have a small taste of that, but to just be really present with everybody who wants to talk to you. Well, I mean, you know, thankfully I, I'm authentic. It's just who I am. Like I've come full circle. Like I, I'm not putting on a show. I'm not acting. Even when I'm exhausted, I enjoy interacting with people. I think because I'm such a strong introvert, that I know when I, you know, when I have my time, Dean's time, if you will, I'm just in a hole. I might just go running by myself for four or five hours. But when I'm around people, I really enjoy the interaction. So uh, the, my quote-unquote fans are likable people. I mean, these are people that come up to me in the airport. They're not like, you know, I, I imagine fans are like a rock group, you know, just fawning. Oh, can I have a selfie or this and that? They're really good people. Like, I want to sit down and have a, a beer with this guy or this, you know, have a cup of coffee with, with them. Um, so that, that I think is really helpful. We're kind of like-minded kindred spirits. And I think they can relate to a lot of my story because it's some of the same feelings and emotions that we've both yeah, shared human, together. It's a human story. Yeah, it's a human story. It, 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 you know, it's never gone to my head. I, I just don't think of myself as anything besides just another runner. I don't think of myself as special in any way. And I, yeah, I don't, I, it'd be funny. <laughs> I'd love someone to just shadow me like around for a day. You'd be amazed, like walking to the airport, people would come up to me. I mean, just even here in Burbank, you know, three people came up to me in the airport. Uh, and they're great people. Mm-hmm. But you just never, you know, you think, okay, well, yeah, Dean's kind of known, but I have people come up to me all over, across the world. I mean, it happens everywhere across the world. And I used to think, okay, this could be a curse, but it's not, it's a gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a real gift. And is there something that, you know, you want to leave with everybody who you interact with, or you're just showing up for whatever, whatever the experience presents? I like to listen to, you know, how I've touched people. Um, or how they even know of me and what their stories are. The thing is, inevitably, when they tell me their story, I am the one who gets inspira- inspired. You know, I mean, people come up to me and they're like, "Oh my God, you know, I read your book. You changed my life." I'm like, "Oh well, you know how? Well, you know, I I had cancer, and you know, they told me I had six months to live, and I said I'm going to not only beat cancer, I'm going to become a marathoner. You, this this book just inspired me." And that was five years ago. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you hear a story like that, and you're yeah. just, how can you not think that this person is an incredible source of inspiration? So that's one thing I've really learned, is that um, inspiration is a, is a two-way street. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Well, the last time we spoke, uh, you kind of let me in on this grand plan that you have of running a marathon in every country across the world. Uh, and I think the idea was to do it in under a year or something like that. So where are you at with that? Is this still <laughs> how many, happening? How many years ago did I tell you I was gonna do that? Oh my God, this thing's gonna kill me. These, hey, listen, big plans take you know a long time to plan. Yeah, this one's been five years in the planning, but you're right, um, hopefully, and it's coming together really nicely. So hopefully in November of 2017, so about a year from now, I'm going to set out on a global expedition to run a marathon in every country of the world in a one-year time span. That's fantastic. Yeah, there's 203 countries, and I'm working with the UN and the State Department. Uh, I've got this logistics team, Hawkeye Sports and Entertainment, that's doing all the planning. It's all staged and ready to go. So hopefully, uh, yeah. Pick a country and come join me. Crazy, you know, sort of visa issues with certain strange countries well the state department has a list of right now it's eight countries where i can't leave the airport Mm. like you know iraq and syria they're like okay we can get you into the airport you're gonna have to set up a treadmill you can run on a treadmill but you can't you can't even go run around the perimeter (laughs) of the airport or anything like that yeah so but i said can i invite some uh, the whole thing with this is i want to invite bring the local people in Yeah, yeah so i said can i set up more than one treadmill and have some of the locals run with me. So. Right, or maybe there's a, a vacant terminal where there's nothing going on that you could transform. And sometimes it's going to be on a military base, yeah. so I'll have military guys. But, I mean, you ran the marathon in Beirut. I mean, you saw what it does. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it kind of unites people in a great sort of way. Yeah, there's no question about it. It's a powerful thing, man. Well, cool. Well, so uh, pick, pick a couple countries and come join me. Yeah, I would love to do that. That would be fantastic. Tahiti. I want to go to the crazy countries, you know, the ones that are hard to, that are, you know, that, that are, anybody can go, you you know, it's like, it's not a vacation. It's about having a, a a mind altering, you know, soul expanding experience. I hope there's some vacation element as well. well, You know, if you're doing 203 in a year, then you're literally, there's not much room for error. You have like you're not coming th- home for a couple. You've got weeks. a you've got a down day here and there, but right. yeah, it, but I'll be on the road the whole time. The road. Yeah, and how do you balance all that with being married and kids and all that? I'll take my family as much as I can. They'll come join me as much as they can. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, I can take uh, my wife Julie with me the entire time. But uh, my family always comes out and sees me at points along the way. So right, cool. Yeah. All right, well, good luck in the game show tomorrow. <laughs> Who is the real ultra marathon man? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I got the easy part. Yeah. I, I mean, it's like, how are they going to not pick you? Uh, <laughs> I don't get it. But uh, anyway, yeah. that should be fun. And uh, thanks so much for doing this, man. Thanks, Richard, for having me on. Okay. So check out the book, Road to Sparta, available everywhere. Is there any specific place people should go to look for it? No, Just it's uh, they can go to Amazon or they can go to any. Of the, I always say support your local uh, independent bookseller because I'm always a yeah. And uh, it's in uh, audio. It's ebook version. Did you so. read the uh, Did you read the audio? I did, but the guy I read, I worked with. I like chose this guy. He's really good, and he's not Greek, but he lives in New York. He he went to Queens where there's all these Greek restaurants. And had he like worked in the kitchen to learn kind of their accent. Wow, that's so he did a really good job with it. Yeah, he was really he's he's an actor and he's just really into it. Yeah, that's cool. Awesome, man. Well, uh, until we meet again, my friend. 
hopefully uh, in, in some strange country <laughs> where we're going to run a marathon. Uh, if you're digging on Dean, uh, the best way to learn more about him and his journey, deancarnazes.com, at deancarnazes on Twitter, and anywhere else people can find uh, you. They can go to ultramarathon.com if they're right. old school. Yeah. And are you on like a, a sort of, uh, book tour where you're speaking in lots of places if people want to see the calendar and calendar's all it's online yeah okay. they can go just yeah ultra marathon man yeah. alright man thanks Rich talk soon <laughs> peace plants peace and play-doh All right, everybody. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Please make a point of picking up Dean's new book, The Road to Sparta. Super fun and fascinating read. You can do that by clicking through the Amazon banner ad on my website, richroll.com. And as always, don't forget to check out the show notes on the episode page on my website. Tons of resources, uh, things that will take your experience of Dean beyond the earbuds. We put a lot of time into those, a lot of effort. Uh, so please make a point of uh, visiting and uh, exploring a little bit more deeply. As always, I appreciate you guys sharing the show with your friends and your colleagues for leaving a review on iTunes, for subscribing, again, for using the Amazon banner ad. Everybody who's made a habit of that, especially with holiday shopping coming up, uh, it makes a huge difference and really supports us. Thank you for doing that. If you want to take your patronage even further, we have a Patreon for that. You can find the banner ad for our Patreon account the same place you can find the Amazon banner at, right on any episode page. Uh, if you guys would like to get a free weekly email from me, it's called Roll Call. You can do that. It's totally free. Each Thursday, I send out uh, a blast with five or six just helpful tips and tools, recommendations, books, documentaries, articles I've come across, products I think are cool, things that I've enjoyed uh, that inspire me or that I find useful. There's no like sort of product endorsement or spamminess to this whatsoever. Uh, just cool stuff. That's it. Uh, and you can subscribe for subscribe to that uh, on my website plenty of places to enter your email shout out to everybody who has helped put on this production today jason camiolo for audio engineering and production sean patterson for graphics chris swan for additional production assistance and help compiling the show notes and theme music as always by analemma also today's interstitial track is called two runs make a right it's by musician runner straight edge vegan and podcast fan Ray Holroyd. And Ray was inspired uh, by the life lessons that he learned from running 5K every day for a year. And he wrote this song. Uh, you can stick around to the end to hear the whole track, uh, which you can find on his website, revolutionharmony.com, as well as on YouTube, Spotify, etc., wherever you enjoy music. But go to his website, revolutionharmony.com. Uh, thanks for the love, you guys. Final thought. On some level, I think it's fair to say that Dean can be chalked up as some kind of genetic freak of nature, but I also think it's too easy to write him off as an outlier, as a guy who is simply genetically wired to do certain things others can't, because I've seen him suffer up close and personal. I've seen him put his shoes on one foot at a time. Uh, he's a phenomenal athlete, of course, but he's a human being just like the rest of us. And if there's anything I can learn from Dean it's that, as I always say, we are all sitting atop mountains of untapped potential. And the only thing sitting between you and tapping into that reservoir of underexpressed potential is you and your willingness to welcome and weather and endure some level of discomfort. 
So let's break the cycle. Let's face that discomfort. And instead of shying away from it, let's embrace it. Let's welcome it. Whatever it is that you're afraid of, walk through it. What you will experience on the other side will only make you stronger. It will make you better. And it will make you more whole as a human being. See you guys soon. Peace. Plants. I got my finger in, I got my five fingers on One life, one run, I pops in harmony Problems are far from me, Hollywood made be symphony Fuck your day every day, from when you rewire my mind Now I live by the 12 lessons I learned from a 12 month streak Here we go, listen to your worry and not your worry Every day is day one, people discourage you just need a hug Run away from depression Every day is day one Help is what separates the great from the good Vibration is movement, movement is running So running is music, we are the music Living your song where you belong Revolution run on it, the white will run from it Never write a breath but always out step Your panic run to it, your purpose run to it Run and run Be more double book, this is best of all Every day is day one Inspiration is contagious, do not procrastinate K and 20 C gives me clarity Every day is day one Commitment is difficult to make But easy to keep Vibration is movement, moment is running So running is music, we are the music Living your song where you belong Revolution run on it, the white man run from it Never write a breath but always out of step Your panic run to it, your purpose run to it Run and run, 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 run.